Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Well, welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. I am super excited about our guest today. He's a speaker, coach, and author, has spent more than 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players, an IES 2022 Speaker of the Year finalist, the author of Sustain the Ga- Your Game, speaker coach. Please welcome Alan Stein. Welcome, Alan. Oh, man, it's so great to be with you. I'm looking forward to a fun chat. Yeah, it's going to be great. So, uh, this podcast is about leadership, and my favorite question to ask my guest is, Alan, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. Uh, you know, I've done just over 300 podcasts in the past six years, and that's the first time I've gotten that question. I think it's awesome. a really insightful one, and I think it's a fun one. Um, so what a great place for us to start. Um, two things come up immediately for me. One is I think there's a misconception that you have to be in a position of authority in order to be a leader, when I actually believe leadership is simply a choice and that someone on the lowest rung of the the org chart can make the choice to be an impactful and influential leader. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say the second misconception is that a leader has to have all of the answers. Uh, When in reality, I think if a leader is being honest and appropriately vulnerable, they'll acknowledge when they don't know something or when they don't know the best direction for the team to take. Um, but what a great leader will do is they'll do everything they can to find that information, but they don't have to be the source of it. So those are the, the first two that jump to mind. Those are, those are great. Um, and taking that in reverse order, um, you know, not having all the answers, it's tough, right? It's tough for us as leaders to admit that. Have you seen situations that a leader wasn't willing to admit they don't have all the information and got him or herself in some sort of predicament? A specific example isn't coming to mind, although I know I've seen examples of this. You know, I'll speak from the first person. You know, I know that in my 20s and even early 30s, a deep-rooted insecurity within me felt like I had to have the answer to everything, that if I didn't have the answer, then that made me less than, that that made me unworthy of, of leading or uh, of, of you know kind of guiding folks on the path. And now that I'm a little bit older, I'm closing in on 50 in the next few years here, um, I realize there's actually more power in the admission and acknowledgement that you don't know something, that in fact, you show confidence by being comfortable enough to say, you know what, that is a great question, and I don't know the answer to that, or I'm, I'm kind of at a crossroads for where I think we should go or the direction we should take, and I don't know it yet. And I think that humility and that vulnerability will actually help you connect more deeply with those on your team or those that follow you. And that's way more important than kind of making up an answer that you don't even know if it's true or it's valid. So as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more comfortable uh, acknowledging when I don't know something. And then I do believe a good leader um, will turn over every stone to try to find that answer and then be able to report back to the team. That's well said. You know, it's, um, and it's hard, as I said earlier, it's hard to admit at times that you don't know. But what I've found is the team rallies around and it's, and it's us as a group 
go and discover what the answer is or find it versus walking into the room and saying, this is the direction we're going. It's the only way we can go. It's, it's a totally different uh, mindset. Absolutely. And you know where I actually put this into practice the most and and I think is you know, kind of the epitome of leadership is as a father. Uh, I have three kids. I have 12-year-old twin sons and a 10-year-old daughter. And um, I acknowledge to them all the time when I don't know. You know, one of the, the most beautiful parts about children, at least in my opinion, is they just ask so many questions, you know, uh, especially when they're really young. Um, everything is why? Well, why? Why? And again, when I was a young, you know, a younger father, a newer father, rather, um, I didn't feel comfortable telling my kids that I didn't know something. But now that I'm older, we have those conversations all the time. And they ask such insightful questions and such creative questions. You know, I mean, of course, they're going to throw something at me that I don't have the answer to. And one thing I say to my children all of the time, and, and I really do believe this as a father uh, it's not my job to teach them what to think. It's my job to teach them how to think. Mm. So even when they pitch something my way that I don't know the answer, um, I explain to them how I plan to find that out, or maybe it's something that they can help me with. Um, so yeah, I put that one into practice with my own kids all of the time. You know, I also have, have two children, uh, 13 and 10. And one of the things I've realized, especially over the pandemic, is they've become very strategic when they ask questions. So most likely someone's going to walk into my office while we're on this recording and say, hey, dad, can I have some ice cream? And the only answer I can give is yes, just to keep <laughs> the show moving so I can completely relate to that. Alan, when we started the conversation, you were chatting about um, choice. leadership as a choice. Can you go into a little bit more detail what you meant by that? There are certain positions in certain organizations where you are given authority. You know, they may give you the moniker manager, uh, director, supervisor. Um, so you are given a certain amount of authority to make certain decisions and, and how you allocate resources and in helping define roles. Uh, but I don't believe that actually makes you a leader. That just simply makes you someone that has authority. I believe leadership is a choice. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to use a, a very broad definition of it is, is, is leadership is the desire to have an influence or an impact over somebody's behavior. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the ability to have a vision and try to get people to get somewhere where they might not believe they can get on their own or at least need some help or some support. So, you know, where I really saw this put into practice was my time as a basketball performance coach where, you you know, you've, you've got the head coach, which is certainly given a, a position of authority, but they weren't the only leader on the team. In fact, if they were the only leader on the team, that was going to be an underperforming team. You know, you had assistant coaches and you had managers, uh, you had players of variety, you know, a variety of roles, you know, you've got the best player or the star player, but the, the most successful teams I was ever a part of, everyone on the team felt a sense of ownership. And everyone on the team felt a sense of leadership. Even the 15th man who didn't play very much still felt compelled to try to have a positive impact over their teammates' behavior and, and to influence their teammates in a good way. And some would do that very vocally. Others would lead by example. But, but the most uh, impressive organizations I've been around, whether in basketball or business, everyone feels a sense of ownership and everyone feels that there is a safe, inclusive environment where they can lead certainly based on their position, but that they're, they're free to have a, a positive impact on others. You know, I'd, I'd love to dive into that dynamic even further, um, especially at the professional sports level, right? Because here's these guys and gals who have been 
the top of their field for all these years to get to where they've gotten all the dedication, the 10,000 hours, 100,000 hours, you name it. But at some point in time, they also have to choose to be led right, by other teammates, by their coach, and at times lead if they're, you know, whoever they are on the, fo- on the floor. Talk to us about that dynamic from a, a professional athlete perspective and how they may approach leadership differently than we have in the business community. Well, you just brought up something really insightful, and that is we all kind of jockey back and forth between leading and following. And um, I know to some folks, being a follower or, or in the following has a negative connotation, but I don't feel that way. I actually think in order to be an effective leader, you have to know when to follow. You know, uh, when you talk about the professional ranks, you know, you've, you've got a, let's just use it as, as an example, a head coach of an NBA team. I mean, certainly they've ascended to the top of their profession. They're, they're one of 30 NBA head coaches in the world. So they're very good at what they do. Um, but they'll be the first to tell you there's no way this team will be successful if I'm the only leader and I lead with an iron fist. They have the confidence and the humility to acknowledge that there's some tremendous wisdom and experience on their team from their assistant coaches and certainly from their players. Um, you know, where, where I've seen this best put in a, uh, put into practice um, was with Coach K. When Coach K took over the, the U.S. men's Olympic team, um, you know, and won three gold medals, you know, here you are talking about arguably the greatest coach in the history of college basketball, if not in all of team sports. And I'm admittedly biased. I'm a huge Duke and Coach K fan. But the very first thing he did was say, look, I might be technically in charge of this group, but there is so much wisdom and experience and expertise that, that my job is to kind of be the conductor of the orchestra and make sure that everybody can play their instrument, if you will, so we can make some beautiful music. And the very first thing he did was lean on LeBron and Kobe and KD and, and, and ask these guys, you know, how should we play? What should our style of play be? You know, Coach K is infamous for starting his, his you know, first meeting before the season starts and getting everyone else to contribute to what their standards of excellence are going to be. Mm-hmm. So this was never a, a top-down uh, uh, leadership approach with him. He very much wanted to curate everyone in the room. And that means at times he needs to be the one listening. He needs to be the one following. He needs to be the one to say, all right, LeBron, how do you think we should guard this team that we're going to play? And then step back and have enough confidence in his ability to lead that he can pass the mic to LeBron and let him talk to the team. And and, and I think that uh, certainly reverberates in, in, in business as well. You know, if you're the CEO of a company, whether you have 10 people or 10,000, you've got to be willing to let other people step up and lead uh, and kind of spread their wings. And, 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 and one last thing I'll say on this, I think really good leaders know that, and I know this from a parenting standpoint, your voice can start to run numb if you're the only voice that your team hears from. That, that if you're not willing to let other people step up and lead, people will start to tune you out. So as a father, uh, absolutely, I want to be a a very present and constant voice in my children's ears, but I want them to be taught and coached and led by other people. I don't want to be the only source of life lessons because eventually they'll tune me out. So, you know, I love letting them get coached by their sports teams. And I just sit back as a proud father in the bleachers and, and, and never overstep that or intervene. That's fantastic. Um, you know, what came to mind as you're talking through the Coach K description 
and his, you know, 40 plus years as a, as a head coach is leadership styles change and they change over time, depending on your environment, depending on your team, depending on your victory condition. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen that change through the work that you've done, you know, specific leaders coming in as person A and stopping as person B or C or D or E? Well, because I'm such a huge Coach K fan, I'll just continue to use his him as an example. Now, um, when I was in the basketball training space, a good portion of my work was with uh, middle school and high school age players. And I was able to work at two really elite level high schools in the Washington, D.C. area. So I have several former players that went on to play for Coach K that, that would give me some insight. Uh, I also was friends with uh, many of his assistant coaches, uh, Chris Collins and Steve Wojciechowski when they were there, uh, Nate James, uh, John Shire before he became uh, the head coach. So I always got their perspective. And, you know, if you if you look at kind of the, the chronology of it all, there was about a 15 year period that I was able to kind of collect inside information on Coach K. And every single one of them said that his leadership would evolve every single year Mm. that probably he would admit as well, if he was on this call that, you know, in his first several years, um, he did most of the leading, but as decades started to pass. And as he was starting to to come towards the end of his career, um, he would pass that on, you know, uh, not pass the buck by any means, but he would pass on the, the, the limelight, if you will. Um, and, you know, he would have some of his assistants actually run a good portion of practice. You know, he would say, so-and-so, you're actually in charge of the bigs and so-and-so, you're in charge of the guards and you guys are going to run this portion of practice. And while he was ultimately always in control and he was the, the top of the org chart, as he got older and more mature, he felt comfortable you know, passing these, you know, delegating this important responsibility on to others. And, you know, I've talked to players, you know, Jay Billis is a, is a really good friend of mine and, and Jay's the best insight because Jay's known coach K for almost his entire career. I mean, Jay Billis was in that recruiting class, I think in 1986, that kind of put coach K on the map and they're still friends to this day. So Jay's provided some tremendous insight and has nothing but reverence and respect and compliments to the way Coach K has evolved as a leader and grown as a leader. And, you know, one of the, the best examples of that, um, you know, as, as times have changed over the last several decades and, you know, uh, hairstyles and earrings and tattoos and ways that players show their individuality, you know, in, in Coach K's first few seasons, those were non-negotiables. It was very militaristic. And, you know, of course, Coach K is a West Point grad. So, you know, you will, you will, you will walk and talk this way if you're going to be a part of this program, uh, almost to the need of having conformity. And then you fast forward three, four decades mm-hmm. later, and he's actually a huge advocate of letting players appropriately, you know, show their individualism and show their personality and, and say, you know, it's, it's not my job to tell a player how to cut their hair or whether or not they can have tattoos. That's their own personal choice. And so that's, that's an example of how he was able to adapt um, and evolve with the times, because I think we can all agree in today's day and age, um, if you plan to coach in college basketball and you put a rule in place about haircuts, piercings, and tattoos, you might not get very many players that want to play for you. Yes. I, I would suspect that's, that's correct. Alan, I love this conversation around the maturity as a leader and how our styles are changing from sort of when we first get the opportunity to later in your career and so on. 
you know, there's probably an audience member out there who's at the early end or, or at the beginning, the early stages of their leadership journey. And they might still be in that command control. I know it all position, any traits or things to look out for as that individual that would say, Hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not being the open-minded leader that I should be. I love that question. I think the the best thing one can do, I I believe self-awareness is the foundation to everything. I, I think if you're not fully aware of what you do well, your talents, your gifts, your strengths, but equally important, if you don't have the courage to look on the other side of the curtain and evaluate yourself where, where you're deficient, where your weaknesses are, your opportunities for growth, your fears, your insecurities, until you're willing to look at both sides and acknowledge that all of that makes you who you are, um, you'll, you'll stagnate. So I think the very first step is having the courage to ask yourself, where do I have the biggest room to grow? And one of the best ways you can do that, as crazy as it sounds, I know it sounds counterintuitive to ask others to help you improve your self-awareness, but that's really what you need to do. Um, in this case, in the example you gave, um, if uh, let's just say it was me, uh, I would ask my inner circle for an evaluation. You know, how, how well do you think I, and then fill in the blank. You know, how well do you think I delegate? How well do you think I acknowledge when I don't know something? And and ask this of people that you believe um, really care about you and want to tell you the truth, even if it's not what you want to hear in the moment people that love you enough to tell you what you need to hear. So I would ask that group for kind of a, can you evaluate me as a leader? And please know that that I want you to be as honest and as raw and as unfiltered as possible. Mm. Please know that I'm aware that you might have to tell me some things that might temporarily hurt my feelings or, or bruise my ego, but I'm okay with that because in the long term it will help me grow. So I would do that with, with a group of, of kind of my inner circle. But then I would also do that with the group that I lead, whoever my team is. And I would ask them, you know, how do you feel about my leadership style? How do you, you know, and, and I know this is, this is tough because if you've really led with a, a hardcore iron fist command and control style, your team may be scared to tell you the truth because they're afraid there's going to be repercussions because maybe in the past when someone has spoke up, you've kind of nipped that in the bud very quickly or deflected. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to you'd have to preempt it with, look, I realize in the past, I may not have created an environment that you feel safe to share honestly, but I want to change that. And please know you have my permission and this is an open invitation for you to give me the straight dope. And I want you to tell me how you really feel. And I give you my word that while it may hurt my feelings or bruise my ego, there'll be no consequence for this other than a high five or a hug because I appreciate you caring enough to be that honest. And I think if you could pull those two groups and then be willing to put your ego aside to evaluate what they share, that's what will put you on the path to growth. And for anyone listening that that sounds really scary, it is. I agree. It won't be easy. Could be some of the most uncomfortable conversations you've ever had as a leader, but it's going to get you where you want to go much quicker. It's going to raise your the, the respect and reverence your team and your inner circle has for you. And I can only tell you through firsthand experience, you're going to end up there anyway. So why not be proactive and, and expedite the process by doing it now? Don't wait for another 20 years until you come to this conclusion with natural life experience and maturity. Like, why don't you 
you do it now. This is a, 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 a cheat code on a game, if you will. I'm giving you the secret sauce to what you need to do to become a much more effective leader immediately. And um, I wish I would have been able to take that advice in my 20s, probably would have been an easier learning curve. I haven't. So all I can do is pay that forward to, to younger leaders now. You know, Alan, I was having a, a similar conversation with a friend on this topic and his approach was, hey, I don't want you to tell me where I'm wrong, but just tell me where I'm not right anymore. And he's talking about, you know, if our business is going in this direction, I don't want people to fear to tell me that I'm wrong because that's going to bring out an emotion. But if I invite them to tell me where I'm not right anymore, that's an easier open conversation. So I thought that was a pretty nifty trick. Oh, I love that. And that's ultimately what we should be encouraging as leaders. See, the other thing we have to realize, and I know this is slightly different depending on the size of an organization, but we all have a different perspective based on our vantage point. And, you know, even if you just, just picture a traditional org chart, if you're at the top of that org chart as the CEO or the president, you literally see the world differently as the person at the bottom of the org chart. They're completely different vantage points. You know, a, a, a 50 year old head coach of a high school basketball team sees the world inherently different than a 15-year-old sophomore playing on the high school basketball team. You know, they have different life uh, experiences. You know, there's, there's so many differences. And as a leader, you should want to collect as many different perspectives from as many different vantage points as possible. You should welcome that. You know, that the CEO should ask somebody what they think who works in sales, who works in the, the research and development, uh, who works in customer service, because each of those people view the business slightly differently through the lens at which they're looking. And same thing as a high school basketball coach. Your, your second assistant coach, your, your second string point guard, and your second year player that's the 15th man on the team all see the world and see your program from a different vantage point. And, and that's what I think we should try to curate. You know, one of the big buzzwords over the last several years um, has been diversity. And, and I'm a huge advocate of diversity. And I think um, in recent years, people tend to think diversity has much more to do with ethnicity, uh, with race, um, maybe even political affiliation or age. And all of those things, uh, I do believe, make up a diverse background. But ultimately, what we should be all trying to get to is diversity of thought. Mm. And, and certainly, uh, different, different races, different backgrounds, different experiences, different ages will give you a different perspective and different thoughts. So that's why that should be encouraged. But if I was a leader, um, I would be much more concerned with what is right instead of who is right. And, mm. and the only way you can get to that conclusion is by finding out as many different vantage points as you can. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. That's well said. Well said. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, Alan, tell us about your story, you know, where you grew up, how you got into what you're doing, what you're doing now. We'd love to sort of understand a little bit more about you. Yeah, I'll be happy to. So uh, I currently live uh, basically in the same area that I grew up, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, I live about 30 minutes outside of the city in a suburb of Maryland. Um, and, you know, I think what's most important is for folks to know that that basketball was my first love. I fell in love with the game at five years old when my parents signed me up for my first recreation basketball team. And I'm so proud and grateful of the fact that here 40 plus years later, 
basketball is still a major pillar of my life. And, mm-hmm. and I say that with the utmost appreciation of the fact that I've been able to build uh, a living and a life off of something that, that I've been passionate about since I was a kid. And, you know, I, I started the first portion of my life as a very dedicated basketball player, uh, was able to play all the way up through playing at Elon University down in, in North Carolina. Uh, when I graduated from Elon, uh, I decided to combine my original love of basketball with a newfound love of what at the time uh, we just called strength and conditioning. Uh, Now it's got a bigger label of performance training. But while I was in college, I was fascinated uh, by strength training and conditioning and plyometrics and nutrition and mindset and decided that when I graduated in the late 90s, what could be better than combining these two loves of basketball and performance training? So I spent the next portion of my life, just over 15 years as a basketball performance coach. Uh, and then in 2017, um, I decided to, to reinvent myself and take every lesson that I'd learned from the game and become a keynote speaker and an author and teach people how to apply those same lessons and disciplines and mindsets and routines to their business and to their lives. And that's what I do at present. Yet a good portion of what it is that I teach now still comes from my basketball roots, still comes from things that I've learned from, you know, Coach K or some other players, uh, elite level players. And I just show folks how to translate those principles of high utility into their lives. So I'm still very much connected to the game. Uh, All three of my children are are very active youth basketball players. They love playing the game. So now I'm getting to see the game from a different vantage point, uh, literally and figuratively. And I'm just so thankful that, that the game has been so good to me. I would love to hear a story about an aha moment from somebody, a a business owner or group that you've been working with and applying these tools and habits that you've developed over the years as a basketball performance coach and then applying them or helping someone to apply them in their business setting. Any story come to mind of like just a big aha moment where somebody just, it was just the light bulb came on. You know what's so cool? So one of the biggest aha moments I've ever had in my career was in 2007, I got a chance to meet Kobe Bryant for the first time. Uh, Nike brought me in to be the performance coach at the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And I, I watched one of his really early morning workouts. And remember at the time as a younger coach, um, being very surprised at the fact that that Kobe was doing very basic drills. He was doing some very basic footwork and offensive moves. Now, this was Kobe Bryant. So he was doing them with unparalleled intensity and effort and was doing them with surgical precision and razor sharp focus. But I remember being very surprised that he wasn't doing drills with a lot of uh, sexiness, a lot of sizzle. You know, he was, he was basically pounding away at the fundamentals. And later that day at camp, when I asked him uh, why a player of his stature would be focused on the fundamentals, he basically said that the reason he was so good was because he never got bored with the basics. And that was a lesson that really changed the way that I viewed everything. And to be honest, that's kind of the cornerstone of what I teach now. But to answer your original question, I mean, there have been countless times where I've worked with an organization, a business group, and I've gotten them to dial back in and refocus on the basics and recommit to mastering the fundamentals during the unseen hours. And it's changed everything for them. They have the aha moment that I had with Kobe, you know, and it's it's not that I was telling them something that they didn't already know. I think I was just reminding them that they can do a better job of executing that and, and would be able to say, look, you know, you guys are talking about all of these 
these advanced things that you're trying to do when clearly your team hasn't mastered the basics. You know, you guys are trying to skip steps when if everyone on your team would commit to the fundamentals, you your performance and productivity and revenue would shoot through the roof. And when they have that aha moment, it's it's merely a reflection of the one that I had because that was the lesson Kobe taught me. And it's incredibly satisfying. So the best groups that I've ever worked with are the ones that refocus the lens on the basics, emphasize the fundamentals and work towards mastery of them during the unseen hours. Yeah, you, you got to do the work, right? You got to get the fundamentals down. You know, when you're talking about performance uh, and nutrition and strength training and the things that you've been working on, you know, my wife and I do, we're back of the pack Ironman competitors. Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, we love it. It's a, it's a hobby, but um, I think about the history of Ironman and the few folks that did it originally, their like nutrition strategy was I'm going to pull over to the closest bar halfway through the race, have a beer, have my cigarette, get back on my bike. Maybe there's some water, blah, blah, blah. And now like when my wife and I are training, like we're down to like 15 minute increments on how much salt we're taking, how many calories we're burning. I'm at this. And it's very much regimented. And over the course, and this is, you know, a back of the packer person that doesn't have, you know, the eight different coaches and all the nutrition, like, like where the professionals are. Talk to us a little bit about that change in mindset in the professional, you know, my other favorite uh, soccer team is Liverpool football club. And there's a classic conversation between Steven Gerrard and uh, uh, he's, his name's slipping me, but he's a man United star. And Steven Gerrard was talking about how Manchester United was one of the original clubs that said, you know what? No more drinking during the soccer season. No more this, no more that. It's back to basics. We're and Man United went on this 18-year run that destroyed the legacy of Liverpool for now. We're, we're getting it back. Anyway, sorry for the long preamble, but I'm curious have, from your perspective of how you've seen performance, nutrition, the game change from just outside of standing at the free throw line shooting foul shots. Well, I, I, uh, such a beautiful question, and I appreciate you sharing that. So when I graduated from college in 1998, less than one-third of NBA teams even had a strength and conditioning consultant at the time. And for the third of the teams that did have a strength and conditioning consultant, it was usually the biggest, strongest muscle head at the local Gold's Gym that was closest to the arena because they just figured this guy must know what he's talking about when it comes to lifting weights. So let's ask him some questions. Uh, I mean, that's 1998. That's not that long ago. Now you fast forward, you know, uh, till present day. And not only does every NBA team have a strength and conditioning coach, they have an entire performance department that most likely employs 30 to 40 full-time people from athletic trainers to performance coaches, to massage therapists, to nutritionists, to chefs, to Pilates instructors, to people that do cold therapy that, I mean, it is unbelievable. And on top of that, the elite of the elite, like a LeBron James, even has his own trainer on top of that, someone he keeps on retainer full-time throughout the year to make sure that they're doing everything possible. And, you know, when you, you look back and, you know, because of my age, when I started to fall in love with the NBA, you know, you're, you're talking about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. And, and I think both of those guys would admit to this day, if you looked back at what they did uh, mm -hmm. in the late 70s and early 80s 
for training and for nutrition. I mean, it's a far cry from what players today are doing. And it's been really neat to see how that's evolved so rapidly just in the last 20 to 30 years. And, um, you know, it's, I think the proof is in the pudding. I think you're seeing um, athletes uh, perform, uh, first of all, more consistently and more sustainably. I mean, you know, think about Larry Bird and, and, and I'll always put Larry Bird on kind of my Mount Rushmore of elite level players, but his, his career was cut short because of back issues. And then you look at somebody like LeBron James, who has basically been the king of the NBA for 20 years, two decades, wow. you know, his, his, his longevity is remarkable. And, and I certainly am, have no interest in starting a debate over who the greatest player of all time is, <laughs> but I certainly think we should take our hats off to the fact that he has been able to play rather injury free. There's a couple of minor injuries he's had, but for 20 years and at his age, you know, Tom Brady is another one, you know, I mean, at, at the time of this recording last night, Tom Brady pulled off another miraculous uh, big time comeback in the fourth quarter to beat the saints. And I mean, that's what he's known for. And the guy's in his forties and he's doing it. And both LeBron James and Tom Brady are two athletes that talk all of the time and preach all of the time about how much effort and discipline and financial resources they pour into their nutrition, mm -hmm. their training, and all of those things. And, you know, that, that was no slight on Magic Johnson or Larry Bird. The information wasn't available then. I'm sure those guys would have done that had there been resources, but that's how, how far this has come. And it's, you know, that, that's the evolution now. And, you know, now even most elite level high schools have a full-time strength and conditioning coach when in 1998, most NBA teams didn't. So I think that's just really cool to see how far that's progressed. So take us forward 10 years. Where is it? Where does it go from here? Well, they'll keep raising the game, if you will, uh, in, in like the nutrition and the performance. I think what we'll start to see is a lot more customization and personalization, you know, individualized medicine where, where at least in the professional ranks, not maybe in high school, in the professional ranks, you know, at the beginning of the season, uh, every player will, you know, submit a blood sample or a urine sample or a DNA sample. And some geneticists will be able to say, this is exactly what you need to eat. This is exactly when you need to train, how much you need to train, how, and it'll be customized for each player. Um, we're slowly working in that direction, but right now it's, it's still kind of general principles for everyone. Um, we've also seen in the last several years, um, the, the preponderance of the mental side of, of, you know, psychology and mental toughness training. <clears throat> and, you know, 15, 20 years ago, very few people were doing that. The elite of the elite were doing it and they understood it, but it wasn't done in mass. So now I think you'll have folks that um, are being trained and taught to be able to stay present, to block out distractions, to heighten their focus, um, to bounce back from adversity, whether that adversity is a turnover in the fourth quarter or that adversity is we've lost four games in a row or that adversity is I tore my ACL. But but all of the, the mental side, I think, will continue to see uh, enhanced. And then what happens is all of these things start at the pro level and will start to trickle down. So 20, 20, 35 years from now, we'll see everything I just described probably at the elite high school level, which then means now the game is being, you know, the floor is being raised, if you will, right. which means, of course, the ceiling will be raised. And um, yeah, it's it's going to be fun to watch for sure. That's, that's exciting. 
Uh, any rec any good resources that you recommend for people to get a better handle on their nutrition, on their lifestyle, on on those types of things to help their their performance? You know, there's there's so many different resources out there. One of the things that I find most challenging um, with social media and with the internet is uh, not any certainly no lack of information, but it's the ability to discern what's quality information and what's mm. not because you have to be able to block out, is this person selling something because they know something of value or is this person selling something because that's just how they're trying to make their living? And it's 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 rather tough. Um, and I still, to this day, even someone with a little bit of a background in it can oftentimes feel a little bit confused on, on what to follow. Um, you know, for me, because I love the basics and I love the fundamentals, you know, I, I live by a few principles myself and I'll just share these, even though I'll make the disclaimer, I am not a nutritionist or a registered dietitian. I'm very novice when it comes to this. Um, uh, for me, uh, I personally try to eat clean and eat healthy between 80 and 90% of the time. The other 10 to 20%, I give myself the freedom uh, to, to eat foods that I enjoy, you know, even if they're not the healthiest. Now, keep in mind, and most folks, if you're watching the video, this will become crystal clear. I am not a world-class elite athlete. You know, I'm someone that just wants to be healthy and, and have a long, vivacious life. So if I was Tom Brady or I was LeBron James, I don't think I'd have an 80-20 rule. I'd mm. probably have a 99-1 rule or maybe a 99.9 0.01 rule because their performance still matters. That's how they make their living. But for me, if I can eat clean 80 to 90% of the time, I feel good about that. As far as my definition of eating clean, I try to eat real foods. Um, I try to stay away from processed foods. Um, and, you know, which basically means, you know, I, I want to eat things with as few ingredients as possible. Uh, if you go right now, if anyone walks to their pantry and opens up and you look at any type of processed food, a food that that can sit on the shelf for a long time, whether it's a bag of pretzels or some wheat thins or some, some cookies, if you look on the ingredients list, you're going to see a massive list of ingredients mm -hmm. and about three quarters of them are things that you can't pronounce and you don't know what they are. And they're basically to make sure that you can keep that food on the shelf for a couple of years. So I try to limit that. That goes in my 20%. And I try to eat real food and eat healthy foods. Um, and, you know, if you were to just follow those two rules and nothing else, that would clean up most people's diets. Very good insight. Um, Alan, one last question. Looking back over your career so far, and a younger version of yourself, what advice would you give yourself 25 years ago? The interesting part is the advice I'd give myself 25 years ago, I would not have been open to receiving because I was pretty hard headed 25 years ago. But that is exactly what my advice would be is to stay open, uh, stay open to new ideas, stay open to new perspectives, stay open to feedback, stay open to coaching, you know, acknowledge that you don't have all of the answers. You know, I can say with a huge smile because I've certainly forgiven my younger self. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in my 20s, I thought I knew everything. And here I am in my late 40s, and I realized not only how much I didn't know in my 20s, but how much I still don't know in my late 40s. I mean, mm -hmm. there's still so much stuff that I need to learn. And 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 I embrace that now. I, I don't, you know, I don't look at it as I'm less than if I don't know something. So most of that, and I'll actually call it arrogance in my 20s, was kind of a, a false male bravado 
to hover, to cover the insecurities that I didn't really know what I was doing in, in most instances. So I would tell myself to just stay open, enjoy the journey, enjoy the process. Um, you'll figure some things out with some life experience, but you'll figure things out if you strategically put yourselves around people that know more than you and have traveled paths that you haven't traveled. You know, I, my, my goal is I never want to be the most accomplished person in any room ever. I always want to put myself in a room where someone has an expertise or an experience that I don't have. And, and then when, when I'm in a room where I'm around some people that, that view me that way, I want to make sure that I'm paying it forward and, and sending the elevator back down, if you will. You know, I, I live by a mantra that I think is vital for leaders, and that is a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And I readily acknowledge with all the gratefulness in my heart, how many people have poured into me and taught me and loved me and coached me and lit my candle that I want to make sure that I'm doing that for as many people as I possibly can. I love that. And, it, and you're bringing it all full circle to the misconceptions about you have to know everything as a leader, right? So we're bringing that back to our 20s when we thought we knew everything and this one direction is the way that we have to go. Alan, an audience member wants to get in touch with you. What's your, your method of choice? So if they go to my website, alansteinjr.com, that's kind of the hub for everything. And, and that's where they can find out information on all of my different speaking programs and so forth. Uh, I also have a, a supplemental site, strongerteam.com, that has info on my podcast and my books and some, some peripheral and supplemental reinforcement tools. Uh, I'm very easily found and accessible on social media at Alan Stein Jr. Um, so someone can shoot me a DM on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm very good about getting back to people. And then if folks have any interest in either of my books, uh, Raise Your Game or Sustain Your Game, uh, they can get those at Amazon or Audible or wherever you like to get books and audiobooks. That's fantastic. And we'll include those notes in our show notes. So people can uh, resource, refer back to them. Alan, awesome. it was awesome having you on the show. You've got me thinking about many different aspects of my life and my nutrition and getting me excited about doing another Ironman race. Um, thanks for the energy and your insights today. Oh my goodness. My pleasure. This was a, a unique and different interview and I really enjoyed it. You do a terrific job. I appreciate that. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com. One last food for thought, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.